Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm always just excited to be able to share thoughts with you, bring interesting guests, showing how if we employ libertarian values of responsibility, live and let live, the private sector being vested with the ability to to address problems, we will all rise together. And I tell you, we're not going to all rise any more than we are with today's guest, who is Professor Gary Leibcap from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and he's involved in what he calls natural resource economics, showing directly, bluntly, straightforwardly how the private sector, foundations, we individuals can do a much better job husbanding our economics, our natural resources, really than the government. And a lot of it, in fact, it goes back to a, something, a question I ask with some frequency, who takes better care of a house? A renter or an owner? And of course, everybody knows it's the owner. Well, who takes better care of grazing lands? A renter or someone that leases or an owner? And I think the same answer comes. So if you get government involved with these products, they lease them out. People tend to overgraze. They lease them out to their cronies, etc. We're going to have this Professor Gary Leibcap show us how, in effect, the problem of the commons, the problems of of stewarding, husbanding our economics and our resources are much better left in so many ways in private hands. So with that, Gary Leibcap, professor, welcome to the show, and I'm going to be taking notes while you give us these these reasons and your background and research. But first, other than welcome, give us a little bit more about your background. Who really is Professor Gary Leibcap, which is spelled L-I-B-E-C-A-P? Professor? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, well, I'm actually... Uh a native Montanan. I grew up uh, just out of Yellowstone Park, and uh, in that setting, uh, natural resources and, and access in fishing and hunting and hiking and so forth um, were an important part of my life, uh, as was the uh, logging and timber industry and, and then mining and so forth. And so these were all part of, of, of my experiences. Um, growing up, I was also fascinated by uh, old family pictures uh, that showed my, my grandfather, who came to Montana in the latter part of the 19th, early 20th century, uh, with uh, then later my, my dad and my uncles, um, holding strings of, of trout uh, or standing in front of piles of ducks or, or uh, uh, pheasants or what have you. Um, and... I would ask my dad uh, whether or not there were fish like that anymore or why it was the case that when we went hunting, we'd oftentimes be lucky to find uh, two or three ducks or, or, or pheasants. And his response uh, was always that, well, they'd been overfished or overhunted and so forth. And, and I, um, I was fascinated by that, wondering, well, how could that be? Uh, why uh, would people 
uh, over overused uh, a resource and to bring down the stock. And these are, I think, also famously shown by the piles of uh, buffalo carcasses uh, from the 19th century uh, by buffalo hunters. And so this was uh, uh, really, I, I think, uh, the beginning of my interest in uh, in natural resources and in the environment. Uh, I went on to the University of Montana in the western part of the state in Missoula, uh, started out in chemistry and then shifted uh, to economics, and then uh, finished, uh, went on into the Air Force uh, for four years, and then uh, to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, where I studied uh, uh, economic history and uh, environmental and natural resource economics. <coughs> and, and the reason uh, for that, kind of blend is that poor societies just do not deal very well with the environment, and they don't deal very well with natural resources. Uh, they don't have the wherewithal, and um, there are a lot of things that uh, are pressuring the population, whereas richer societies do, and there's just a lot of empirical evidence to support that, and I think that gets lost in today's um, discussion of, of the environment and, and resources. Um, with the neglect of, well, what are the trade-offs here and, and what costs might be imposed. Um, and then um, when I finished, I was very anxious to get west, uh, so uh, t- took positions uh, at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque and then Texas A&M, and then for a long time at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and then uh, most recently at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where my office uh overlooks the Santa Barbara Channel and out over to the Channel Islands. Um, or two of the positions that I've held that uh, have been particularly rewarding uh, or enjoyable. Uh, one, uh, I was the Pitt Professor of, of American Institutions and History uh, at Cambridge University in the UK. Uh, every four years, this rotates to an economist and uh, uh, so in 2010 and 11, uh, my wife and I spent a year uh, in Cambridge, uh, where I worked on on a variety of, of resource issues, as well as uh, explored uh, the UK. And then uh, this last year, uh, I was an Erskine professor uh, at the University of Canterbury in, in Christchurch uh, in, in uh, New Zealand, uh, where I taught uh, courses in environmental and natural resource economics. So uh, it's been a wonderful ride, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to be part of the conversation today. Well, Professor, based upon that discussion, I'm having a great deal of difficulty feeling sorry for you. I, I've got to tell you, the, the side benefits of being able to live for a year in Cambridge, the London area, etc., or in Christchurch, which is also just a gorgeous place, just good for you. And you mentioned your pictures, and, and it really, we have a place in uh, Newport Beach where they uh, uh, have pictures of, and it's called the Pavilion, which is basically the first building built on the peninsula in Newport Beach. And they have pictures where people were simply fishing off the pier and bringing in large numbers of yellowtail and various other fish. Of course, you can't get anything close to that now. Overfishing, of course, is just a, a huge issue. But you are involved in what you call natural resource economics. And I, I'm familiar with the problem of the commons. And we'll talk about that too. But how do you define find natural resource economics, because that title itself is intriguing to me. Well, it's, uh, 
it's using the tools of economics to look at the specific problems of of natural resource exploitation, conservation, of the rate of exploitation, and investment in, in protecting the stock. And it, so it ranges from examining issues of grazing lands and timber, uh, oil pools, aquifers, uh, surface water, uh, fish, fish stocks, um, and, uh, and ecosystems. Um, it is joint, typically, with uh, environmental economics, uh, and the, the questions are are virtually the same. The only difference, I think, is that the environment is uh, less tangible. And so um, it, it tends to deal more with issues of, well, climate change, um, water contamination, perhaps, uh, air pollution, and so forth. And so it's uh, somewhat less uh, concrete in the sense that the, the uh, object of analysis is somewhat less bounded than uh, is the case uh, for natural resources. Um, and um, while both are highly politicized, unfortunately, in today's discussions, uh, environmental, uh, I think, uh, is, is more so. And so in, in a way, it's, it's harder to do. Um, kind of disinterested research and, and read uh, studies uh, describing and the outcomes of disinterested research uh, when there are so, so many competing views on this thing. So you have to be quite careful, frankly, uh, in, in, in what you read and how to interpret uh, the reported results. When you mentioned the tragedy of the commons or, or exploitation, basically, the example I use is, folks, think of the Oregon Trail, and you'll have some wagon trains coming across, and let's say that they have a couple of uh, areas in which they have wild apple trees. And so the first wagon train that comes in, they say, oh, look at all those apples. And they pick them. And uh, well, we might as well pick more than we need because why not? They're free. And if we don't, somebody else will. So then they leave and then another wagon train comes through and they see a few ripe apples, but let's pick the green ones too because, well, why wait for them to, to ripen? If we don't pick them, somebody else will. And we can always give them to our oxen. Then other wagon trains come through and they pretty much decimate all of the apples. But hey, we have some firewood there let's let's cut that down and we might as well because we can use the firewood and if we don't someone else will then pretty soon of course there's no no not only any apples there's no apple trees but if they were owned by the private sector, by someone there, they would then husband these trees, they'd water them, they'd prune them, they'd take care of them, and then they would sell the apples to people coming through, so people would only buy what they'd need, and then lo and behold, next year there'll also be apples there. That's kind of the example I give, where you have the private center with incentives as opposed to exploitation. Uh, what do you think about that example, and I'm sure you have dozens more. Well, I think that... Um pretty clearly uh, describes uh, the tragedy of the commons. I mean, the name in itself in that phrase uh, details what you might expect uh, when you have um, um, kind of competing demands on a, on a, a resource and little incentive um, in an open access setting, little incentive to conserve the, to conserve the resource. It, it just doesn't get conserved. Uh, the problem with um, establishing some kind of property right is that it's expensive in the sense that 
somebody is an owner and somebody is a non-owner, and non-owners would prefer to be owners. And so there are allocation issues uh, that um, are everywhere all the time. But the resource itself doesn't care about that. Uh, not, not that the resource cares, but the point is that the resource will be protected if there's a property right of some type uh, as compared to as compared to open access. Now, um, the, the standard way to deal with the tragedy of the commons, uh, and certainly the way in which it's, it's discussed today, uh, is through what are called uh, Pagovian taxes or, or regulations. And there was a, 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 a famous economist, of, of which there were many uh, at Cambridge uh, in the early part of the 20th century, named Cecil Pagou. Uh, and he laid out a framework whereby um, if the pri- private incentives or private costs didn't align with social costs, we would tend to get over-exploitation. So in your example, uh, there is a social cost in that all the pr- subsequent uh, wagon trains will be denied access to apple trees, and the initial harvesters uh, won't take that into consideration. Now, a way to deal with that, of course, is if there is a private property institution, then um, those private and social uh, costs get aligned. But if you don't have them, then it's, it's sort of open. And, and Pagu uh, argued that, well, this was a case for the state, for government to come in and decide what the optimal amount of exploitation should be, and therefore... Um, tax the amount that would align or make equal private and social costs. Um, we hardly ever actually see those kinds of taxes, so the alternative is, is a regulation that restricts entry or use. In your case, the example you have that would outline the months in which um, apples could be picked and how many apples could be taken and so forth. Uh, this is all done by the state, and so it it assumes that a regulatory agency would know what the optimal amount of harvest would be, and and uh, and when that should take place, and the politicians would be uh, responsive to those concerns. Now, as it turns out, I think there is plenty of evidence that we can talk about shortly. Uh, that doesn't work very well um, because nobody is really an owner, and so the usual incentives are to get around the law. Um, so I come along in, in your case and uh, see the apple tree, and uh, uh, even though there's a sign uh, by order of the federal government or, or whatever state government or whatever, uh, you're not to pick apples before uh September 1 or something, and the point is, you look around and see no enforcement agency, and so the incentives remain to overexploit. Uh, whereas, if we had some property regime, um, then these incentives become more, far more effectively aligned, and, and the nice thing is, we actually have a lot of empirical evidence on this, especially for fisheries, and, and as I said, we can come back to that. But the dominant way now, as you hear from many advocates, uh, with, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about the environment or resource use, uh, 
uh, is uh, to rely upon state controls and, and not on, on property rights. And that's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate for the resource, and it's unfortunate uh, for the society. It, it is indeed. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I was on a radio show this pretty much on the topic, too, that uh, I was on a radio show. It was in Iowa, and we were discussing various things, and ethanol came up. I was talking about hemp and uh, and the benefits of hemp as, a, as an industrial crop, and a farmer came on to the show and said, well, Judge Gray, I'm going to speak against my own economic self-interest because I raise corn, but you can get more ethanol. Of course, ethanol is an additive to gasoline. You can get more ethanol from an acre of hemp than you can of corn, and corn will clog your carburetor and hemp won't. And I was thinking to myself, you know, look, of course, I'm not, that's not my field, but if you allow ethanol to be created by the best product, the free market will take care of that right away. And that's simply true here as well. And you talk about, well, government will regulate, sure, and makes people feel warm and fuzzy, like, oh, mother government's taking care of us. But then you get, in actuality, you know, uh, you'll get this huge amounts of grazing land leased out below market price to their cronies, to the people that, that have more political power, instead of having it used more more regularly. So, okay, you brought up the subject, Professor Lightcap, about fisheries. But let's talk about fisheries, because they're certainly being over overfished and and I can come back too and and mention another issue where I was I had family in Pismo Beach uh, which is near San Luis Obispo Central California and Pismo was known for clams in fact you know Pismo clams were, were a very big commodity now there are almost no Pismo clams available on the beaches why well because we overfished the sharks well wait a minute what does that have to well the sharks used to to take care of and prune down the otter population, you do away with the sharks, so now there are more otters, so otters feast on the clams, and now there's no clams. So it's, it's all kind of connected. Tell us how fisheries can be affected by incentives and the free market. Yeah, um, well, the nice thing about fisheries, as I mentioned, uh, is that uh, we have a lot of experience with them. Uh, at the end of World War II, um, as today, um, there was increased reliance on, on the ocean's fish stocks uh, for protein, and that's certainly true today. Um, and because fish move, many fish, fin fish move, they're hard to assign a property rate to. It's not impossible, uh, but it's more, more difficult than for more stationary species like, like clams, as you mentioned, or, or lobsters, or oysters, uh, and, and so, so forth. Um, so at the, as stocks began to fall dramatically by the late 1950s, early 1960s, um, catch per unit of efforts, so that's how much uh, fishers uh, were bringing back to shore were declining, uh, and profits were falling, and fish stocks were, were collapsing. And so um, there was pressure on how to respond to this problem. Now, the one that you and I uh, would just advocate uh, is one whereby, well, how would we, this is a problem of the commons, which really by definition means absence of a property right, a constraint on entry and use. So we could have decided, well, um, how might we assign some kind of prop property right uh, to these fisheries? And for 
stationary species, it really is not that difficult. Um, for fin fish, some migrate more, some migrate less, and again, so it wouldn't have been impossible. And you could certainly imagine uh, assigning a territorial property right whereby all the fish in a certain bay or a certain region um, were owned by, by somebody. Already, as I described that, you can see the pushback uh, because the pushback is that, hey, fish fish stocks are a public resource. Um, they're owned by the people. People should, and when you say should, then you're getting into normative, should have easy access and it shouldn't be owned by somebody. It just seems wrong. And so you get these um, philosophical uh, and as well as political pushbacks. So the response really to these declines um, in stock were not, the responses were not to define and allocate property rights. And the, the response was regulation. Um, and so these usually were uh, to find a way to restrict harvest. And so the first thing that was done was to find non-voters. And I, I say that cynically, but actually it's the case. You regulate foreigners, and so you restrict foreign access to American waters, or other countries would do the same. And um, uh, and then for state waters, you restrict access from out-of-state uh, fishers. But that doesn't constrain uh, the people, uh, locals, from fishing too much, because they don't have a property right again. So as a consequence, this didn't work very well, and so gradually... Uh, the controls were uh, became more and more constraining. Uh, the seasons were reduced. Um, there were restrictions on what equipment you could use, uh, use basically requiring, in many cases, sort of 19th century technology in the 20th century because uh, the 20th newer technology was viewed as too damaging. And you can see from this, it just has a huge regulatory overload that requires a lot of enforcement, uh, enforcement officials. But it doesn't change the underlying incentives of fishers uh, to try to evade the season uh, as well as these uh, uh, equipment and, and, uh, uh, and other kind of effort uh, controls. And so what happened is that by the 1980s and certainly by the early 1990s, fish stocks were still collapsing because famously the cod in the northeastern U.S., but um, in the western United States and Canada, in the Pacific, you know, all of the California, many of the California species were collapsing, stocks were collapsing. And the halibut fishery uh, in, in British Columbia and the U.S., um, the seasons were down to uh, four to six days a year, which meant that fishers had to catch all their fish in that four- to six-day period, uh, which meant to a, uh, led to a derby, a rush. It was very dangerous, and boats would line up and, and then rush out. Stocks were still declining. Profits were low. And the only uh, halibut that was made available to consumers was frozen because all the fish had to be caught at that time. Low-value uh, product. So, and this really is replicated all over. And as a result... By the late 1980s and early 1990s, the notion of, of a return, although we never really did it before, but a turn to a property rights regime 
And the way this has worked is to assign a total annual allowable harvest or catch for a particular fishery at a particular time, usually for a year, and then allocate use rights as a share of that total. And in the best circumstances, these use rights are tradable and they're a full property right. And the only place it really does that is New Zealand. Uh, and, and the pushback here is, again, this notion of equity and allocation. And it's, it's really prevalent in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is a public resource, so we're not going to give a long-term tenure to, to individuals. Sure. Even so, it's far better than the old uh, regulatory regime. And there have been... Uh, I don't want to say hundreds, but possibly hundreds of studies documenting the improvements in the stock and the profitability where these uh, catch share property rights regimes have been implemented. And they're implemented, in, as I mentioned, in New Zealand, but also Iceland, uh, many U.S. fisheries in Canada uh, and, and Peru and, and so forth. And they just have been very effective. Yes. Um, and so... That's what I, I said earlier, that we have evidence, uh, empirical evidence, on how well or, or, or in, ineffective uh, government regulation has typically been, and how a property rights regime, even a pretty constrained one, uh, has brought enormous uh, benefits. And we would Professor, in the, uh, in the time we, we just have about a, we have about a minute left I mean, before the break, let me ask you a quick question. How do you distinguish yeah. in this system between commercial rights of fishing, for example, and recreational? Because you don't have a property right as a recreational fisher, but we're certainly going to allow people to go out and hook up a, a, a tuna occasionally. What, what's the difference? Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, because politically, everybody is a potential recreational fisherman, uh, and the commercial fishery is much smaller. And so generally, worldwide, the uh, recreational fishery is unregulated. But these aren't people just sitting on the dock. This includes uh, commercial uh, recreational vessels and so forth. And so uh, regular fishing industry vessels cut back the stock improvements get absorbed or taken by recreational fishermen. So that's a problem of allocation that has to be solved if you're going to make, if it's going to be the case that these property rights regimes are going to be effective. You're not telling me that life is complicated, are you? You couldn't possibly be there. <laughs> I, I am. So. I am telling you. Okay, that, well, so. I, I tried not to be too blunt, but I guess that's the reality. But but this is the right approach, and we're going to take a couple of breaks here to hear some other important messages, and then come back and continue with our guest, Professor Gary Leibcap from the University of California, Santa Barbara, talking about natural resource economics. But here we'll just take this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. 
Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit LP.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at LP.org. Together, we can move mountains. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back after hearing those messages. You know, I am proud to be a libertarian, and I, I was a lifelong Republican for a long time until I really saw that the Libertarian Party is the in the mainstream of American political thought today, where we do understand responsibility. We do understand the live and let live philosophy, and we're hearing the, as far as just incentives, because incentives do matter. We're hearing that from our present guest, uh, Professor Gary Leipkap from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and we have a lot more to discuss. But first, in keeping with my wife's demand upon me to be throw a little bit of silliness into this show, I can tell you the following. Uh, when you swim in the sea and an eel bites your knee, that's amore. So depending on how you spell more, uh, that's my attempt for the week. Uh, it only gets better from here, Professor. But uh, we can go back to you know the, the exploitation. And I still remember probably in the 1960s, 70s, probably even until the 80s, uh, Japan would send out these big boats with have drag huge strainers through the through the ocean, including on the bottom. They just pick up everything that was there and pretty much throw out about 70% of it, although you'd kill a lot of, of fish and a lot of uh, uh, 
Bates and the rest, but but uh, at least we've stopped that in our area of the world because we can keep people at least from the twelve mile limit for coming in. But is is Japan still doing that, to your knowledge? Yeah, I don't. Uh, the problem you describe is is a general one. I don't know if Japan is particular uh, particular culprit anymore. Um, countries have. Uh, jurisdiction for 200 miles uh, out in what's called their exclusive economic zone. And so most countries um, have the potential to uh, control uh, exploitation of fisheries uh, out that far. And the good news uh, is that that really covers most of, of, the, uh, of the banks, uh, the continental shelf, and, and, and where the fishing is most uh, um, abundant and, and vibrant, deeper into the open ocean, um, it's just less productive. And so, um, and there are fewer fish generally. And so, for the most part, um, the fact that you get beyond 200 miles is sort of unregulated, open. Um, those areas tend to be fish somewhat less. Now, there are, of course, important uh, uh, cases where that's not true, but, but nevertheless, it it's generally describes the setting. That doesn't mean, though, that countries um, are, are simp- equally effective, and in many cases, governments are corrupt or weak, and uh, especially off Africa, and uh, Chinese vessels uh, and others uh, come in and uh, either fish as unregulated and unreported, um, or they uh, pay off uh, local officials. So uh, it, it's pretty spotty um, worldwide. Within a, a country, of course, if, even if you keep the, the foreign fleets out, you still have to do the right thing uh, within their own users. And this is a real problem, as I said, um, because the notion of assigning a property right uh, for many to a, what's called, some people call public resource, um, is, uh, is, is really uh, problematic. And you get into these distributional conflicts. Um, but whenever I hear... Uh, Somebody, and particularly this tends to be a politician or a bureaucratic official, claim that a resource is a public resource, then that is really going to be open access by law. It's, uh, we're going to step into the tragedy of the commons and, uh, uh, and, and generally rely upon government to constrain access and use. And as I described, uh, with fisheries, we just don't have a good reason to think that's going to be very effective. Yes, indeed. Well, we do need some control, but but the private sector really stands forth. On the fifteenth uh, of November, I had a guest on this show, All Rise, named Liz Harvey of the California Nature Conservancy, and it's my understanding that uh, you have worked with, you're aware of the Nature Conservancy work with regard to fisheries, etc. Uh, are they doing a good job? Yes, the Nature Conservancy uh, stands out, uh, as I described earlier. Um, the way to respond to natural resources as well as environmental problems um, is to provide some kind of property rights and, and allow 
individuals then to trade those rights and so forth. And you can constrain the overall amount of fishing effort or amount of air pollutants or, or what have you, but nevertheless assign a property right to that total allowable harvest or or uh, emissions or, or, or withdrawal, if you're talking about aquifers, and, and allow those to be exchanged. Or the alternative is to have the state mandate uh, what those uh, extraction or exploitation rates can be. Most environmental groups take this latter. They uh, align with bureaucratic agencies who are frankly happy to have this authority and uh, their their membership aligns with politicians who uh, really support their um, uh, their methods. And so, for most environmental groups, it's it's really a command and control approach. The Nature Conservancy stands out in taking the uh, property rights and incentive approach, and, and so it's far less contentious, uh, and um, in many cases, far more. Uh, effective and productive. And, and so I, I really applaud that organization. Uh, I've worked with them uh, in fisheries uh, in Peru, and they're very active in terms of water rights and water markets, as well as uh, the maintenance of uh, sort of ecosystem, terrestrial or land-based uh, ecosystems uh, uh, here in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world. And so they, they really try to align locals uh, to make them part of the solution rather than have them be the enemy, which is uh, the way in which um, uh, government uh, imposed restrictions, sort of top-down restrictions, um, often uh, play out. Well, like in, in Africa with the poaching of the elephants or rhinoceros, etc., what companies or, or groups like uh, the Nature Conservancy do is show the locals how they're so much better off economically by husbanding these and keeping the poaching from occurring. It's a, it just brings in that private responsibility and incentives. But we also have, an, and it's on everyone's mind at least, or certainly in the media, what is loosely called climate change. Uh, in many ways, I think it's it's a kind of promotion of fear-mongering. But in other ways, of course, uh, just check your thermometer. Things are getting warmer. We're having more fires and the rest of this. Um, how, what What is your opinion about climate change and, and what is going on that the private sector can do to address it? Well, <clears throat> climate change... It is, as we all know, a huge issue. Um, it is presented in the media, typically doom and gloom, that is impending and that actually we can take actions today to halt it, to, to uh, mediate it. Um, the, the facts are that the science on the timing, the spread, and the magnitude of climate change involves a lot of uncertainty. So we really do not know very uh, precisely where, when, and how much climate change will unfold. It's not to say there won't be some. It's just the idea being we just don't know. Uh, and you can pick, and if you look at the data, um, the spread around the mean or average values is so great, you can pick almost any value you want. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty, and that just is not conveyed uh, effectively. But what that also means uh, is that 
some countries are going and regions are going to be um, impacted far more than others. And so this is not a uniform um, problem worldwide. In fact, upper latitude countries, particularly in the northern hemisphere, uh, are likely to be made better off. Uh, that includes Russia, parts of China, Canada, uh, northern Europe, uh, parts of the U.S., and so forth. Uh, other parts uh, may be made worse off, and we hear all about that, so I don't have to go into it. But why that's important is that this is an international collective action problem. This is a global uh, problem, and it really means that major uh, uh, parties have to be part of the solution, and you can't really take unilateral action. And yet most of the push on this in the U.S. and in, in, in Germany and elsewhere uh, is for carbon taxes and, and other kinds of constraints uh, in order to combat climate change. Not going to combat climate change. Uh, carbon tax will raise enormous amounts of revenue, so I actually expect we'll see them. But, but, uh, but by and large, if the U.S. cuts back, but China does not, or India does not, or Indonesia does not, or the major hydrocarbon-producing countries, Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, and so forth, if they don't cut back, then there can be perfect replacement of every of every re- reduction in emissions um, that's undertaken in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere. Now, these are presented as win-win uh, in, in these kind of loose discussions, but they're not. Um, combating climate change is costly. You have to change the nature of production that goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. So we have industries and people, real people, whose livelihoods are all wrapped up in the use of energy. And right now, the majority of that energy is carbon-based. But it's this, these, this loose discussion uh, that you hear in, in the political arena is that somehow we can have a Green New Deal or whatever, uh, and that the U.S. will become a leader uh, in, in combating climate change. There also is no empirical evidence that countries engage or assume costs, and I'm talking about significant costs, if they can't appropriate the benefits. But that's the problem with climate change, is that anything we do will be captured or benefit countries and populations around the world. So it might be the case that if we cut back, there would be some benefits in the U.S., but there wouldn't be if there was perfect replacement of emissions in China or India. And poor countries are desperate for more energy. They need energy to run their industries. They need energy to run their hospitals. They need energy to clear or clean up water. They are desperate for low-cost energy. And one thing that you don't hear pointed out is as we, being the U.S., cut back um, in hydrocarbon use, it only makes the existing stocks cheaper and so it becomes even less costly to exploit coal and other and other um, hydrocarbons elsewhere in the world. And so until climate change, the costs of climate change become more apparent, I don't see countries uh, engaging in any kind of meaningful joint action to address it, regardless of what we do in this country. And I, I think 
if you think about it, most of the, of the discussions that take place are really about the alleged costs of climate change. But they don't, you rarely see discussion of the costs of addressing it. And if you think about it, this means every, virtually every car on the road today, the capital stock associated with those cars, the uh, pipeline system that brings natural gas around the country, which is, by the way, as we all know, a low cost, uh, a low emission fuel, um, industries associated with hydrocarbons, people and families that own mineral rights in this country. They don't in many countries, but they do in this country, in Canada. So these are all people who will be impacted by changes that were that you hear thrown around that we're supposed to take. Uh, for example, in California, uh, in, in other in, in, in urban areas within it and elsewhere, about a carbon-free uh, uh, urban area or state by 2030 or 2050 or, or what have you. The point is, those are uh, catchy deadlines, but they don't in any way take account of the costs uh, involved. And these involve real people whose lives will be affected. And because, as I mentioned earlier, the uncertainty is so great as to how this will play out in any event, and the timing and magnitudes, you don't know how long it will take um, for um, that people will have to cut back on their standard of living. Well, um, anything. And, uh, so when you hear these these triple bottom line statements, sometimes are phrased that we'll all be better off. Well, how will we all be better off? At what time? And how, and how will this happen? And, um, and how will some parts of the country, Wyoming, Texas, Louisiana, and so forth, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, how will they, they be, be made better off in the industries and, and, Certainly. Uh, and so forth? And well, then finally, a- <laughs> we engage and bear all these costs in, in, in the U.S. and perhaps in Europe, and we become poorer as a result. Um, and yet we observe China, which I think is quite likely, uh, they'll be a non-compliant now, they, a compliant country. Now, it is true that eastern China is much wealthier than it was in the past. Western China, 300 to 500 million people, is still desperately poor, still desperately relies on, on coal, cheap coal, as much of India. I just don't see the political system in, in India or China willing to bear more important costs to engage in a highly uncertain uh, international effort to address climate change until it becomes a lot more clear exactly what we're talking about and where sure. and, and who and so forth. And so this international coordination problem is a huge one, and yet it gets almost no discussion anywhere. Well, the, the, a lot of people say, oh, scientists all agree that. And I don't think scientists all agree really well on anything in this area. But you also, I think what you're saying directly is it just comes down to a cost-benefit analysis that, okay, we in California or in the United States could really improve our air by stopping all motor vehicles, just no motor vehicles at all. Well, we decimate our economy. Would it make that much difference in the world's climate the answer is no, because you have other countries that would be simply uh, con- contributing to uh, to the pollution. And uh, my goodness, uh, I, in the 
1950s, I took a trip to England, and in London, boy, the, the air quality was awful. It was, they were built, everyone was burning coal, and they had this soot all through the, the city where they had this coal dust and everything else. But soon, and you're right, it does take a more wealthy society to address the climate, but, but uh, they don't... They don't use coal. They don't burn coal anymore in London, and the air quality is much better. Then I've been to China, oh, four or five years ago, I guess, and everywhere between Beijing and Singapore, excuse me, Beijing and uh, uh, around that area, people were wearing masks because the air quality was just palpably terrible, and there's no clean water and no clean air in China. And uh, they're going to have to uh, to address this. But like you say, it's a cost-benefit analysis, and poor countries have a great deal of difficulty suffering that 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 change because they so desperately need the uh, the power. But even if we yeah, go, Jim, I might mention um, on these issues of local pollutants. I think you can be far more optimistic there. You talk about London or even Beijing, or for that matter, the Los Angeles basin. Local pollutants, um, if you take it's clear that there's a problem and that action has to be taken, and you can do a cost-benefit analysis and start to implement controls. And in the case of, of London uh, and, and in Southern California uh, and, and, and in China, around the east, uh, eastern urban areas, you can reduce um, coal use in, in other pollutants. But that's not, that's not carbon uh, dioxide. Carbon dioxide is, you, you don't see it, you don't taste it, it's invisible, and it spreads throughout the planet. And it is not something that you can look out and say, oh, we have to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions because it makes our air dirty. It's not carbon dioxide that does that. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that countries can address, uh, even New Delhi, at some point as they get richer, uh, address local pollutants. An international uh, pollutant, carbon dioxide, is far more difficult because it's the benefits of, of addressing it um, don't accrue locally typically, even though the costs do. And I just think it makes it a much more, uh, much more fundamental problem. And if I, I read recently, and this just has to make sense. The countries do what's in their best interest. And why do they do that? Because politicians, if they don't do what's in the interest of their constituents or their populations or history. And within the last year, Japan withdrew from the International Whaling Commission, uh, which, uh, and there's a lot of criticism and so forth, but it basically has an influential constituency that fishes for whales. It's not a big group, and they don't take a lot of them. And they felt that the stocks had rebounded. But international controls hadn't changed. And so as a, as, as a result, Japan went ahead and, um, and withdrew. Now, that's, that's kind of a low-cost, low-impact action. But if you are considering something that really requires the restructuring of an economy, especially in a society that's trying to develop or a society that has a lot of unemployment or economic downturn and so forth. I just don't see long-term adherence to any of these uh, international agreements. Well, like you say, governments and people will act in their own economic self-interest, uh, and we understand that as libertarians. But there, 
there can be and should be a function of government. Uh, we, we had talked about the Nature Conservancy showing fishermen, for example, how conservation would be in their own economic interest. But what about the idea, and you mentioned carbon dioxide, which of course is, is a problem. How about, do you think that governments will be ending up providing subsidies to the Amazon areas uh, in Brazil or Peru, etc., to keep from destroying the the foliage there and the and the jungles uh, would that be a way that government could be of assistance, Professor? Well, yeah, I uh, to the degree to which um, outside intervention, outside meaning non-Brazilian uh, intervention, is going to be effective, then I think it makes perfect sense to compensate a country. Uh, for the costs that are, are inflicted uh, on its population for engaging in certain actions, in this case, deforestation. Um, so long as those costs are low, you could, you could imagine flows of funds from the U.S. and Europe uh, going to Brazil. The problem in Brazil, really, is there are a lot of poor people, a lot of poor people migrating north from southern Brazil uh, to essentially free land uh, in the Amazon Basin. Property rights are not very clear and secure uh, in the Amazon Basin typically. Uh, and so as a consequence, uh, even where there are uh, ranches or farms, uh, if, if there are many trees uh, maintained on, on those properties, um, those properties are subject to invasion uh, by uh, outsiders, meaning uh, new migrants coming in and staking claims. And so that's part of the reason why the Amazon has been associated with violence is that a lot of people are migrating up there to settle and improve their lot in life. So it really emphasizes how important economic growth and development are to addressing environmental and natural resource problems. So to come back and moralize, as, as, as many uh, people in the U.S. and Europe do about Brazil uh, and, the, and, and deforestation, have to, they have to recall that these are poor people trying to improve their lot in life. And if you want them to cut back, then you have to have some kind of property rights regime that allows the kind of constraints we talked about earlier with fisheries uh, to be implemented uh, in the Amazon. And I just, you know, right now it's a lot of uh, rhetorical uh, theater, really, uh, and not much effective. Uh, many people don't like the government down there, uh, so they're going to be very critical of it. If you had a different government, they might pull back, but it isn't going to change the underlying problems of deforestation in the Amazon. Well, Professor, in a couple of minutes we have remaining, uh, it's my understanding that in England and Britain, they privatize streams with regard to the trout or whatever fish in there, and it's worked really quite well that you can do some good fly fishing there and, and it's husbanded and the rest. But uh, for to give people some more information about what you're doing, uh, what natural resource economics and the imp import of it, uh, how can they get additional information uh, as to and get involved in this whole area? Just give us quickly a, a, a source for more information for our listeners. Well, I, so I don't, I don't do advocacy. Um, uh, you know, research is what 
what I love and have done. Um, so I guess if, if you're interested in natural resource issues and, and environmental issues as well, uh, and the various uh, groups at the Bren School uh, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, you can get onto the webpage there. Um, fisheries is a strong area of, of, of research and interest uh, there among the faculty. It's not an advocacy faculty, uh, so I think you can get a sense, uh, for the most part, I think you can get a good sense of, of what um, the research is like, what uh, the uh, research studies are showing, and get some sense of, of, how, you, uh, of how things might play out for better or for worse. <laughs> well, Professor Leibkap from University of California, Santa Barbara, we, we owe you a debt of thanks. The people of the world owe you a debt of thanks because you're focusing on what works, which is basically a libertarian value that, that you want to use more, <laughs> focus on what works. Milton Friedman made the comment that if we could have a revolution if people would assess our programs by what works instead of what sounds good or good intentions. And that's, that's what you're doing. And thank you for that. So there you have it. In many ways, again, life is complicated and we know that certainly with regard to this issue we're talking about with climate change and incentives to uh, to husband our resources. But the libertarian approach is certainly so much better as put forth by our esteemed guest, Professor Gary Leibcap. So again, there you be. If we employ these values, we will all rise together. And it's Judge Jim Gray saying, thank you for listening. We mean to encourage discussion. You can go back through our website at voiceamerica.com, the Variety Channel, and pick up any of our past uh, sessions on demand. And uh, in the meantime, we'll talk to you again next Friday here with another exciting guest. And at this point, Judge Jim Gray is saying and continues to say, and I hope you do as well, life is good. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.